Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, September 28, 2012, and this is episode 988 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it's Friday, and with some, some uh, missed shows and travel and all, we haven't done a listener call show in a while. Listener calls are back. Today is Friday, 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 and instead of monster trucks, we have monster calls from the audience. Got 12 of them lined up. I usually do 10. I'm doing two extra ones to kind of try to catch up on some of the backlog that uh, the travels created. And if you want to be on a show like this, the way you try to get on here, in about 30% maybe-ish in that range of calls do get on the air, Find a phone. Pick the phone up. If it has numbers on it, mash them. If it doesn't have numbers and a, th a button, you can mash a touch pad, then touch them and touch the following numbers. 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. Leave your call in about two minutes or less. You get actually three. I always say two, though, because otherwise people try to do three and end up with five and get cut off and call back four times. Uh, but knowing your question before you call is a great idea. Write down, my question is, on a piece of paper sometimes if you need to do it. Some people don't, but I think that if you know what your question is and you give me your question in the details, you end up getting your call in in plenty of time with no worry about being cut off, and it comes across better, and I'm able to more answer what you're asking. Sometimes I get a question, and I, I listen to the call like four times, and then I go, well, I'm not going to do that one. And it's not that it's really in of itself a bad call. I just can't tell what the person actually is asking. So if you know the question, you ask the question cut and dry up front, it'll prevent the details from fogging up what your question actually is. Before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure through their support that our show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Today I have the opportunity to welcome a new sponsor, uh, Survival Gear Bags, run by Kelly John Doe. It is an awesome company. It is an awesome assortment of survival gear, specializing obviously in bags, but a lot of gear to go in those bags as well. He puts together great deals from time to time. He's got a, a special deal that will come out on Monday I'll let you guys know about uh, that can help you with something that will be coming on Tuesday. You'll be able to kill two birds with one stone quite literally. Uh, my whole thing, though, about why I'm so happy to bring Kelly on, and there's a long list of people waiting to get on, and Kelly wasn't exactly at the head of the list, but he was one of the first people I said, hey, let's, let's, let's go ahead and run with you. I don't feel like he dilutes the other sponsors much at all. Um, he's not a heavy competitor with any of the other sponsors. He really specializes in the gear bags and, and the gear for the bags. Uh, and two was the Survival Gear Bags was created several years ago, uh, kind of as a direct result of the Survival Podcast. Kelly became part of our community. He's on our forum. He's known as Cart Pusher there. He put together a lot of deals for group buys for the audience before he even set up the gear bag deal. He does this for a living as his job, and his employers work with him to back the gear bags division. The, the, the company kind of has some ownership in. And he's been supporting the member support brigade for almost three years now with a discount. And when occasionally there's a hiccup or something, 
He's always fixed it. So I've got a real member of this community in Kelly John Doe and Survival Gear Bags, and I'm very happy to welcome as a sponsor. And uh, if you spend your money there, you know you're doing it with someone that's part of our community. So check them out today. See if they have anything you need, survivalgearbags.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. Hey, talk about a member of the community. How about Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor? The guy that stepped up and said, Jack, I want to sponsor this show when nobody wanted to sponsor the show, when there was no one there yet, when we only had like, I don't know, about 800 listeners or something like that, if that. And he said, I want to do this officially. And I said, okay, you know what? Hold on. Let me figure out how to do it officially. And uh, let me let me build the listener base up a little bit. And uh, he said, okay. And I put together the entire program based on wanting to take Safe Castle as an official sponsor. By the time we did, we had a couple thousand listeners. We were able to do a good job for them and earn our sponsorship uh, fee. And he's paid us back a million times over by being such a great sponsor, having so much great stuff, and giving away his discount club membership for free to all member support brigade members. In fact, he was one of the ways that I was able to come up with the MSB He's one of the foundational elements of the Survival Podcast, and they have everything you could ever want for your prepping. So check them out today at SafeCastle. Uh, actually, the, the best, easiest way to find them on their website, prepared.pro, prepared.pro. And you can find Survival Gear Bags and Safe Castle and all of our sponsors. Best way, as always, go to the survivalpodcast.com first. Click on their banner in the right-hand margin. If you just do a Google search, you might find a brand pirate. There's plenty of people out there. Let a person build up a business and then try to uh, sound like that company so uh, they can gain that, co that company's goodwill. We call those brand pirates. They are out there. You will know you're dealing with my officially endorsed companies if you go to my site first. No tracking links or nothing like that. It's not self-serving. It's audience-serving when I recommend that you do that. Uh, next up, remember, episode 1000 is coming up. I need your photos for Revolution 2.0 video, which is the Revolution is You song video uh, montage on you, uh, picture montage on YouTube we'll be doing. And I need your calls into the special number for that. That number is not the think line. It's 866-691-5353. Again, 866-691-5353. Um, I'm probably going to just cap that off. On September 30th will be the last day. Once we get into October, uh, no more submissions. So if you've been holding out, do it this weekend. There'll be a link in today's show notes with full details if you're not sure what I'm talking about. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Support the show at 20 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service. Email me before you join with service discount in the subject line. I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your membership and save you even more money. All right. With that, I've got all the housekeeping wrapped up. Let's go ahead and take our first call today. Hey, Jack. This is Jake in Minnesota, formerly of Turkey. I uh, hope you had a great time in North Carolina last weekend. Hey, I had, my question this week is I'm just curious, what podcast do you listen to? Uh, we really, we all enjoy your survival podcast so much and the five minutes with jack and sometimes i wonder you know well, how does jack feed his mind what are the podcasts you listen to we'd love to hear once in a while you know what what books are influencing you and those types of things uh it'd just be interesting to hear what podcasts you consume okay well thanks again for everything and uh thanks for all the inspiration we get bye well uh it's going to sound a little weird but i don't listen to a lot of podcasts um i listen to a couple people here and there Uh, Jason Akers, the self-sufficient gardener, I'll listen to from time to time because I like to hear what he's doing, uh, and I consider him a friend. Uh, occasionally, I listen to Johnny Max and the Queen at the self-sufficient homestead. I haven't really listened to them for dang near ever. Um, 
And occasionally somebody will send me a link to a podcast, say this podcast is about, and I think you should listen to it because, and those are usually the ones I listen to. And, and here's part of why. If you've listened to me for any length of time, you know that it, it, at times I can almost come across like you think, well, this guy thinks he knows everything. And, and it's not that I think I know everything. It's that I try to talk about the things that I know. And then I know a lot about a lot of, or a little about a lot of things. And when I'm over my head, I bring a guest in to cover a subject. And when you bring guests in to cover subjects for four years, you become far more informed about those subjects as well. And it leads you to ask other questions and find other answers. So, but, The big part of the gift I have that allows me to do a show like this on so much variety, basically come off almost like a life coach one day, a business advisor the next day, an economic analyst the next day, a food storage person the day after that, and, and then talk about primitive skills on the next day, and then do an, an audience question show at the end of the week like this where I talk about 20 different things, um, is it, it uh, what it would be called a, a not a photographic memory, But almost, I would have to make a new term for it, almost an audiographic memory. When I read, I read as though there's a voice in my head. I can't really explain to others say that's what happens. And I have huge reading retention. And if I hear something, I remember it. This is a two-edged sword. As a educator and a performer, it's important for me to make my work as original as possible. Now, certain things can only be so original, right? I can only talk about swales with so much originality because it's an ancient technique, and I know most of what I know about it from a combination of practical application and the work of Jeff Lawton. But what I don't want to do, and if I listen to somebody's material daily, it will happen, is ingrain their knowledge to a level where when I repeat it, I sound like I'm parroting them, and to do it at such a layer and a level through repetition to where I forget that it's even where I know it so I don't give credit where credit is due. So I listen to a lot less talk radio and a lot less podcasts today than I ever did. And when you live this, like this is what I do, it's kind of like the mechanic that works on everybody's car all day, you don't go home and work on your own brakes the way you're supposed to. So I do a lot more with reading, and I'm reading a lot more poetry and fiction and things that are unrelated to the subject matter lately, just to decouple a little bit. But I do read a lot of things. There's a book list on my site of some of the more influential books that I've read. I try to watch a lot of DVDs and YouTube movies. Anything that Jeff Lawton or Bill Mollison puts their hands on, I'm going to watch. Anything in the permaculture space, I'm going to watch. It's the place where I feel I have the most to learn, so it's where I put the most effort into. I do try to watch a lot of other preppers, YouTube videos and stuff like that, and I don't mean to sound in any way negative or anything, but a lot of times I just get bored with it. And I don't know if it's because I already know so much from doing this for so long or if it's their presentation or what have you, but I find myself skipping a lot and maybe picking up one or two things here and there. The primary way that I get my information is through continuous Internet research, uh, continuous monitoring of news stations, news channels, news feeds, and from an audience that's an amazing research team. So I get hundreds of emails every day, and it's all I can do to keep up with trying to track down the ones that you know merit coverage and getting on the show. And then this is going to sound wrong or arrogant if you take it the wrong way or self-serving or something like that. But the podcast, and please give me a chance to explain it on the other side, the podcast I listen to most is my own podcast. 
I find myself maybe once or twice a week listening to an episode. I often will find myself publishing a, an episode on a day where I don't have an interview in the afternoon or my interview in the afternoon is so late in the afternoon or I get done so early that I can have the time. And while I work, I listen to the show that I just did. It's not because I think I'm so great. It's because I believe in constant, continuous improvement. I believe in constantly checking yourself, constantly coaching yourself. So I will listen to a show and go, you know what? I was a little too hard on that person. And I'll try to say, you know, let's rein that back in. I'll listen to a show and I'll go, you know, I wasn't passionate enough about that, that thing. I need to be a little bit more passionate about things when I talk like that. Or I'll listen to a show and go, that was freaking some of the best work you ever did. Remember what it felt like when you were doing it and seek that again. I listen to my own show the way that an athlete would watch game tapes of themselves catching and running with a football. And going, I caught that ball and I made that touchdown, but boy, I got lucky because the guy blew the coverage. That wasn't really me. Here's what I did wrong anyway. Or the reason I was intercepted that time isn't the quarterback's fault. It's because I misread the play. And an athlete will sit there and watch their game tape over and over and over again, not going, God, I'm a great athlete, but going and nitpicking themselves. What have I done wrong? The other thing is whenever you become successful with some level of a performance art, whether it's talk radio podcasting like I do or a musician or anything like that, along the way you will tend to get soft in some places, you will tend to get complacent in some places, and you can lose the very thing that made you a success. You can lose the passion. You can lose the, the, if there was a spark of anger, if there was a sense of urgency, if there was anything like that, you can lose it. And hopefully, though, at the same time, you've matured as a, as a performer and you've learned how to do things a little bit better. And the, the, the person that becomes truly a master of their craft is the person that can reconnect with the driving passion of the starving artist, so to speak, and keep it tempered with the maturity developed over time. So not, you know, maybe tweaking out as bad as I used to, but yet tweaking out when it's, when it's warranted. And when that's what people want to hear is the genuine, honest urgency or anger. So a lot of times I'll just take a podcast from like the first 100 and I'll listen to it and I'll go, God, that audio sucked. God, that sucked. God, that sucked. Boy, I shouldn't have said that. But in the end, I go, you hear that, Jack. You hear that guy that was like, this has got to be done. This has got to happen. This is you, That has to stay with me. So I actually end up listening to myself more than anybody else. From a business podcast standpoint, I've looked And it's part of why I started doing Five Minutes with Jack. And to be honest with you guys, I don't know if Five Minutes with Jack has a real future because this is my passion. This is what I do. Like, I want to help people with business, but this, this thing, this, this community of TSP is what I love. This is what I pour my heart and soul into every day. And I don't know that I can, you know, to turn an old proverb, you know, serve two masters there. Um, But the best one I found, and I'm not in love with it, is Podcast Answer Man. There's all kinds of tips and tricks, but the guy's such an audio snob and so worried about things that I've learned long ago don't really matter. Uh, that, you know, I, but I do learn some things about social media and all there. And I think there's a niche for a really good business podcast. And I'd like to see one do, someone do one better than five minutes with Jack. And that's what I could use as a podcast on business. Uh, and I know I can do a podcast on business, but I could use one. And that would be one I wouldn't be afraid to listen to regularly because I'm not going to parrot the information back. 
But my fear is if I start listening to the other preparedness podcasts, right? All these, all these podcasts have sprung up. Some of them are great. What you're going to end up hearing from me is a repetition of their information and, and a loss of originality. And I know with my memory capabilities that it could occur, and I try to prevent myself from doing that. Um, you guys keep me busy with enough information, <laughs> frankly. Uh, thanks for that call. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Ian in Arizona. I was wondering how you would go about finding a good financial advisor who's not a complete liar. I have uh, some uh, some IRA money and mutual funds, Vanguard, and I really would be interested in moving it into something a little bit better than just kind of the standard stock market fund. And uh, I really don't know where to start looking for a decent financial advisor. Um, I don't really have the time to give myself a, a full education in, in doing this on my own, just with everything else I've got going on. And it's something I'd like to outsource to a professional. But like I said, I don't really know where to start. So any suggestions on finding someone good would be much appreciated. Thanks. I'm going to piss some people off, especially people that are financial advisors that uh, that work at the, the middle income tier and below. But many years ago, I went to a financial seminar with a guy that had worked as an advisor uh, for a very long time to the layer that we don't qualify to be at, the people with a net worth of $2 million and up, and it was come and learn what no one will tell you. And it's where I learned a lot about this. And After that, uh, in business relationships, I've had partners that, with large net worths. Uh, the last partner that I work with, for instance, has a net worth of about $20 million. And they've reinforced what I've learned from there, and that is you don't qualify for a really good financial advisor. You might find one. You might find a guy that's really switched on with what he's doing But he's still going to be limited because of the regulation and the way that the entire industry is run. Here's the thing. You say you don't have time to you know, really learn all this and you want to outsource it. You can't. you got to learn. If you, I'm going to be blunt and you're going to be mad at me, but I'm serious. If you don't give a shit about your money, your financial advisor isn't going to give a shit about your money. Let me say that again so that everybody in this audience can understand that. And here's that passion and anger building up. You can't tell me, I don't give a shit about my money enough to know uh, what to do with it with, but I want somebody to do it for me. He doesn't give a shit about your money. He gives a shit about the relationship with you that keeps your money under his management, under his brokerage, so he gets paid, whether by fee or commission, doesn't matter because he's going to make sure he gets paid every freaking year. And he's doing not anything wrong because he's a bad guy. He's doing what the industry trains these people to do. This is what every financial advisor is going to do with you. We need to sit down and talk about your future and make a plan and come up with a profile and lottie freaking daw and determine your risk tolerance and bullshit hype this and bullshit hype that. This is why I call them financial liars. Not because they're bad people, because the whole industry's a liar. And you'll say, well, I, you know, this and that. In the end, they could do a review with 20, 40-year-old married couples with similar income, and no matter what the hell you tell them, you're going to end up with the same damn string of mutual funds. 
This is what a financial advisor needs to be for you. Someone that executes your orders and advises you when you have a question. Not someone you say, here's my money, go divvy it up for me. That's stupid talk. It really is. And that's why these guys have such a bad rap, because that's what they've been conditioned to train people to expect. The reason I call them financial liars is they tell you complete bullshit. They say things like, well, the manager of this fund religiously, uh, you know, it just determines whether these are good companies or not. They send people in to look at how they're, they're conducting business and to buy from them and to work for them just to find out the inner, and then they make the best decision. It's bullshit. And I'll tell you why it's bullshit. When they put you in a mid-cap stock fund and the stock market's about to careen off the, to oblivion like it was in 2008, All those advisors knew it was going to happen. Why didn't they protect you? They can't. The regulations say if it's a mid-cap fund, it has to hold mid-cap stocks. So they got to sit there and take a punch in the face, wait till you freak out, start liquidating your stock, then they have to sell the stock to pay you, and that drives the market down. The whole thing is a bunch of bullshit. right? So, for instance, I have a financial advisor. I don't think he's good or bad. I think he knows what he's doing. And I think he's trained, and I think he deals with most of his clients the way... That I just described. He doesn't deal with me that way. Because when I hired him right before the 2008 bust, and I said, we're going to protect my money. I can do it with you or without you, but we are not sitting in stocks. We are not taking in the, in the face. You are going to help me move my money to a place where I can't lose, or the most I'm going to lose is one or two points. And we're going to wait this thing out. We're going to figure out what we do after that. Guess what? No matter what kind of financial training they have, when you tell them that, that's what they do. But they're all going to want to sit down with you and have a bullshit conversation first because by regulation they have to. Well, we got to figure out, you know, what your risk tolerance is and blah, blah, freaking blah. This is the reality right now. The market's a scary place. And you need to be very, very in touch with why you're buying anything that you're buying. And you need to have conversations. It doesn't matter who you hire. You need to have conversations like, when do we exit this security? You want me to buy this? Okay, why? That's the number, you know, see? Why? And they say, well, because these, these, and these, and these, and these. What kind of performance are you expecting? Now, traditionally, it's at, well, why do you expect that performance to continue? Do you know? If they don't know, and you don't know, then why are you buying it? If they have an answer for that, you say, okay, great. What's our contingency plan? And they'll go, well, uh, uh, dollar cost averaging. Dollar cost averaging is not a contingency plan. It's not. It's a stupid plan. It's keep buying shit when it goes down. How'd that work out if you were buying a, stock, a, a mutual fund leverage into a stock like Yahoo when it tumbled from $299 freaking dollars down to 20 bucks and never went back to shit? How does dollar cost averaging work out with that? It doesn't. It's bullshit. It's a lie. The contingency is if this security falls more than five or ten or whatever points, we're exiting it. We're going to a safe haven and finding a new security to invest in, and we're going to follow it with a stop loss so that if it does decline, you know, we, we have an opportunity to catch it before it falls too far. And your financial stop losses are bad because what if you're holding stock in Coca-Cola and somebody finds a thumb in it and it drops? So what? So what if it drops and drops and drops and drops, and you, ask clown, never have the guts to say sell, right? There's a reason rich people use stop losses, because they're not stupid, 
right? So if you want a good financial advisor, I hate to put it this way, but you have to make your advisor be a good advisor. All they want to do is sit down once a year with you, have another bullshit conversation with you to quote unquote ensure the relationship, which is what they're learning in their training, review and tell you you should be contributing more and hope you're dumb enough to do it and leave your portfolio the way that it is. That's what they want to do. And if you tell them you want to change something, they'll move some stuff around, but in the end, you're going to end up with the same asset allocation. You might end up with 10% more bonds than, than what you had stocks before. It's still crap. It's still 100% paper security. So you have to be active and engaged and hold their feet to the fire. And if you find one that doesn't want to work that way, you fire them and find another one. And if you can't find any, if you think there's not enough around, go to a damn chamber of commerce meeting, kick a table, and 47 of them will run out of it from underneath and kick another table, and 52 real estate agents will run out. There's plenty of them out there. Talk to them, but take an active interest in your money. Pay attention to what's going on in the market. If you don't give a shit, they won't either. I hear from my guy once or twice a year. We need to do a review. What do you have to tell me that you didn't tell me last time? Uh, when you can tell me what you have to tell me that we didn't talk about last time, we can set up and take my time for your review. Otherwise, I will call you when I need you. I know I sound like a dick. It's my money. I have a right to be a dick about it. That's how I feel. That's why the industry's screwed, and we've been led into a stupid complacency where we think it's actually acceptable to outsource responsibility for your own wealth. It's not. You don't qualify for the person that's good enough to do it with if you ain't worth about two million bucks. You don't qualify. You don't qualify legally. You don't qualify by regulation. And you don't qualify by clientele. The kind of guy you're looking for, the guy that reviews your portfolio at least once a week, that calls you with a recommendation, knows why he has the recommendation, the guy that's got you in a position where if you stay level, you make a little bit of money. If it goes up, you make a lot of money. If it goes down, you make a lot of money. That guy, he doesn't work with people that you know, make fifty, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a year. He doesn't work with those people. He works with millionaires because he's worth enough that they're willing to pay him. That's the reality. I'm sorry there's not a different one. You gotta be responsible for it. Let's take another call. Hey Jack, this is Steve in South Carolina. I was wondering what your thoughts were on capturing feral hogs for domestication. I've recently moved further out into the sticks and there are two feral piglets running around. So I'd love to graduate them into bacon. All I've seen in the meeting is pine cones and muscadines. I doubt that meat would taste very good on that diet. So I'm not above chasing them down on foot. Would you suggest another way of catching them? Thanks for everything. Oh, yeah, this is an easy one, and maybe it'll bring my blood pressure down a little bit. I'm, I'm telling you guys, that whole industry just pisses me off because I know the scam that it is for people. Um, and I know how bad people I know how bad people are going to get punched in the face in the next few years. And I know that financial advisors are going to be telling everybody how wonderful it is when this market continues to surge on a bullshit false inflated bubble. But let's talk about feral hogs right now because they make more sense than the financial industry, uh, especially at the consumer level. All right, first of all, your belief that the hogs that are out there wild, if taken as wild game and eaten, won't taste very good is completely unfounded. Uh, they're not living on pine cones. Uh, if you see them chewing on pine cones, they're probably getting pine nuts out of there, which is a great source of protein, and it's why they're doing it. They don't actually eat pine cones. I don't know if anything actually eats the cone itself. They, they chew into the cone to get to the seeds. Um, anyway, um, but what they won't be is very fat. They'll be very lean animals. Wild pork is always very lean, but I find it to be uh, great-tasting meat. So if you just want to harvest uh, some hogs on occasion off the wild side of things and just eat them, 
don't think that you're going to have poor quality pork. What you're just going to have is pork that's a lot leaner than you're accustomed to from even pastured pork that's given some supplemental feed. Uh, number two, as far as domesticating wild hogs, there's no reason you can't do it other than I don't know if you might have some local ordinances you need to be aware of. Whether you choose to follow them or not is up to you, but being aware of them is a good freaking idea. You want to make sure you're aware of them so that you can make an informed decision about that. Obviously, in uh, Michigan, with their stupidity and trying to call heirloom breeds of hogs wild hogs, they would definitely be a problem. In other areas, it's probably not so much. Uh, next, uh, if you're going to trap pigs that you're going to try to domesticate, you better, you said piglets, they better be little piglets. Um, a hog that's wild um, does not domesticate easily. Uh, pigs move one direction in the domestication process, and that's away from it. Uh, 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 cattle are not naturally feral animals. If a cow goes feral, it goes by circumstance and requirement. It has to go. It has to. It, there's no one to feed it. It's like hell. I got to figure something out, and it starts to develop a feral uh, wild cattle population. But they're they're a domestic animal. They like to be domesticated. They like to be led. They like to be milked. For God's sakes, uh, if you have a cow that's not happy, it won't produce milk. I don't know, a lot of people don't know that. So um, it, it, it's a different aspect with pigs. Pigs are never truly safe animals to work with. We've got another question coming up on pigs in a, in a bit that we'll talk about this, but uh, if you got an animal that's uh, six months and been wild it's for six months, it's, uh, it's one, getting close to being big enough to slaughter, and two, it's not an animal I would be comfortable working with. So when you say piglets, you better be talking about piglets. As far as capturing them, the best way to capture wild hogs is you basically build what amounts to a, a fence, an impromptu fence, about three foot tall, with one way in with a door. You put a lot of things in there they'd like to eat, like corn uh, or any other thing that would attract them. You make a door that'll drop, and you make a trigger, and you want to make it fairly large, like the size of a mid-sized room, somewhere in that range. You put the trigger all the way as far away from the door as it can be with a big pile of extra food there. The hope, then, is not that you get a hog, but you get hogs. So a lot of times, especially like if you got piglets running around, they'll have sows with them, uh, the sow leader piglets in there, and, and you might have all, you know, 15, 20 pigs if you're lucky, or four or five if you're not as lucky, and some of them might be piglets. If you get a sow with piglets, you just assume walk out, shoot her in the head with a 44, uh, right behind the ear, and kill her. Because if you try to get at those piglets while she's in there for your little domestication project, you will find out how tough, ornery, and dangerous a pig is. Um, she'll try to kill you. Uh, flat out try to kill you. Uh, and I think that a lot of people don't understand how strong and vicious a pig is as an animal and how much work it takes to domesticate them. And what I mean by the one direction flow, if you take a group of pigs, six pigs, four sows, two boars that are completely domesticated and let them go in a swamp and come back in five years, you will have a huge population of wild pigs and they will look very little like the ones you started the herd with. They will revert. They're that, they're that type of an animal. They're, they're one of these animals that we bring into domestication that's walking a line between domesticated and wilded all the time. So if you want to domesticate the little ones, you can do it, but that's what you're going to have to do. A place I used to hunt wild hogs, and this guy brought in, he had a 20,000-acre ranch, and he brought in true, full-blooded Russian boars. All right, So this wasn't the typical feral hog. 
One day, his son went out, and there was a group of little piglets, little striped piglets, right? You know, cute little ones. And he went out and grabbed one by the ankle, uh, ran it down and caught it, like you're saying, and, and, and brought it in. And, and it was really small, and it accepted domestication. And they started feeding it. And they keep it in a pen where hunters can see, you know, how big what their potential is. And that animal's dangerous, even though it was raised by hand. Uh, that animal, when you've been hunting and you have the smell of it, like if you've taken another, like the one time we went and looked at him, I had already shot uh, another hog and uh, had had field dressed it. And when I went, the the damn thing wanted to come through the the, the fence because I smelled like a rival boar. Uh, and that 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 pig weighed about 400 pounds. So I think he needs to be clear about what you're doing here and why you're doing it. And I'm just I've told you how to do it. Youngest you can get. Uh, Uh, start taking care of them right away. If you get in the, any adults in there, kill them. Uh, how to build the trap, and this is what I'm going to tell you. If you want to raise pigs, you would be better off going out and find a good heritage pig breeder and picking a breed you want to raise and buying your stock. You really would. If you want to use trapping as a way to acquire hogs for food, and it's legal in your area, and it is in most areas because they're considered invasive, that's fine. And if you even wanted to do kind of this approach, trap, young pigs into a confined space and feed them to finish them off, you could probably get away with that. But do not let your guard down for a second with any wild animal, especially a wild hog. Hunters over overrate the danger because they like to feel like I'm going big game hunting, you know, and they're out with a freaking, you know, 4570 hot loaded up to shoot a feral pig that weighs 150 pounds on a ranch and that pig ain't coming after them. Uh, the, the charging boar and all this stuff, it happens, but way less than the, especially with just the ferals, not the Russians. But put that animal in a confined space where it feels like it has no way out, where there's nowhere to run. And you will see speed, uh, aggression, and strength that is difficult to comprehend coming out of an animal that size. Uh, really. So use caution. If you were damn set on doing it, I've told you how I would do it, and I would again. I mean, if it's if it's not a baby, if it's not something you could pick up and hold like a cat in your hand, I'd say it's it's probably too old to try to domesticate. Now, somebody may have done it and proved me wrong, but uh, you know, I'd be looking for them when they're when they're so little you could uh, grab them by the scruff of the neck, basically. And again, if you end up with a trap with a few piglets in there in a the sow, uh, just shoot her. Uh, shooter and, and cleaner and eater because you ain't touching them piglets, I promise you. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Eric from the cornfields of Indiana, and uh, something tells me an entire show could be done on this, but uh, I heard a podcast where you were talking about bone stock and uh, boiling the bones of, uh, you know, venison or beef animals, and I know you use that for a lot of the vitamins and stuff, uh, even charring them or at least, you know, browning them in the oven before you use them. But uh, what do you do after that? Because uh, I'd heard of uh, bone broth before, didn't know if you um, uh, actually mashed it up or chopped it up and actually used it for the calcium. Or is that something, say, after you make the stock and you've boiled it a couple times, Can you then take the bones, maybe crush them up as fine as you can? Would you put that into your garden for the uh, garden to break down and use for uh, calcium? Is there anything else you can do with that? I'd appreciate uh, your thoughts on that. Have a great one, and uh, thanks for everything you do. 
I guess it certainly could be dried out and ground up and added to the uh, to the garden. There would still be some residual nutrient uh, and things like that there, and the, uh, you know your hollow bones like your femurs and stuff like that have a significant amount of marrow, and there's probably quite a bit of uh, fertilizer effect there as well. So you could do that. Um, the thing is, when you make bone stock, proper bone stock, what we're talking about is a huge stock pot, right? And we're talking about cooking that down till it's like half where it was and then adding water and cooking it down again and adding and we're talking about something that takes a couple days to do when you really do it right and you end up with this incredibly rich thick stock now the reason it's rich and thick is the little bits of meat all of the minerals and the bone all of the flavor a lot of the marrow even if you can't see it, it's been extracted through the porous nature of the bones And the bones are not like they were when you started. When you take a, even a big old heavy bone like a, a cow femur, uh, which is a great way to make a beef stock, and you take a couple of those and you make bone stock out of it, you can, a lot of times, even a big femur like that, you can take your hands and you can break it. It's so cooked. It's softened. And I have a giant German Shepherd and a not-so-giant Black Labrador. And they love when I make bone stock because when I'm done with it, they get it. And then in some ways, I guess they recycle it out into the yard. And that's what I do with my leftovers from the bone stock. I feel that once I've created the stock, I've extracted the part that I'm extracting for my personal use. Using it in the garden could be good. One thing I would say is you definitely would want to dry it out. You're not going to get it pounded up and ground up very well. Uh, unless you let it dry out. Like I said, you'll, you'd be surprised if you spend two days cooking a femur. Uh, how soft it is, uh, and some of your like your deer bones and all that are smaller. It's 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 a pretty amazing what happens to them by the time you're done really extracting everything you can get out of them. Uh, the the good thing about that is when you give it to your dog, people worry about giving dogs bones and them getting caught and all. Dogs are designed to eat bones. The problem is they're not designed to eat bones cooked the way that we generally cook. They're designed to eat raw bones. So uh, for instance, I know a woman who has a PhD. Uh, in naturopathic medicine, and she did her PhD uh, thesis on, uh, or dissertation, whatever they call it, doctoral dissertation, on canine nutrition, and she recommends feeding dogs raw chicken. And the, the amount of research that went into her, th her uh, whatever you call it, uh, was just unbelievable. And when I read it, I couldn't believe how much she brought and, you know, all these tests and incidents of no dogs having any problems eating these bones. And you say, well, what, why do some dogs and you, you know, give them a chicken bone and they get stuck in their throat or whatever? Well, when we cook a bone like roasting and short term or grilled, that bone gets crystallized. And if you take a chicken bone uh, from a chicken you cooked on the grill and you break it, it'll almost shatter. You take a steak bone and hit it with a hammer, it'll almost shatter like very brittle and sharp. If you take a raw bone and you beat on it, it doesn't come out that way. It comes out totally different. When you cook bones in bone stock two days' worth of simmering, that bone's soft. That bone's become even more acceptable food for your dog. So I feed it to my dogs. Uh, it's a long answer to, I guess, a short answer, but, but that's my rationale behind it. And I, I look at it this way. Like, we shoot a deer. Um, you end up with this big pile of bones, and most people just, you know, it's it's waste, and they throw it away. And deer butchers throw tons of this stuff out. Maybe it goes to a rendering factory on a, on a large-scale operation or something like that. But to me, you take all these bones, you roast them like you were saying, and the oven's a great thing. You roast them till they're brown, uh, just a little, just till they're brown, like just like they look like they were roasted. And, you know, all the little bits of meat you can pick off and eat that if you want to. And then you just throw those into a giant kettle, and you cook them into a stock. 
You end up with this rich stock, and then the dogs take care of eliminating the rest of the waste. And that's part of what I see a dog's role on a homestead is, you know, I slaughter a chicken, they eat the guts. I slaughter a rabbit, they eat the guts. You know, the part that I don't want to use becomes not just, it's not just a feed for them. They're doing me a service by eliminating something that otherwise would stink and need another way to be gotten rid of. So I see the dog on a homestead is a multifunction asset, not just a guardian, not just a protector, not just an alert system, not just a security system. He's also with high quality waste that is good for a dog, a waste elimination system. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Courtney from Indiana. I have a question. You talked about making raised bed gardens with compost that you have from around um, your property, like your compost you made. What if you don't have any compost? What would you suggest buying that's similar or doesn't have a lot of chemicals in it? Thanks for all you do. Enjoy the show. Have a great day. Well, it's it's really kind of a two-part question because the first question that's buried in there is, you know, is it possible that I can get some compost with some toxins in it, and those toxins then are detrimental to my plants, things uh, like, you know, Roundup, uh, uh, silage. So let's say uh, one of the sources for my compost is uh, silage, and that silage is from uh, soy, and that soy silage has been treated with Roundup, and that silage has then been fed to a cow, and that cow's manure is then allowing the Roundup uh, or if they're being fed corn silage atrazine to pass through the cattle system, end up in the compost and have a detrimental effect. And it can happen. And there's some really nasty compost out there that really has some tremendously bad effects. But because it's happened here and there, the entire concept has been overblown, as usually happens in this space. So I'm going to bring in expert council member who doesn't know he's an expert council member, by the way, uh, Jeff Lawton right now. A little tip, tip uh, clip off of YouTube I'm grabbing of his. I'm going to play that for you. Then I'm going to come back and answer the rest of the question. I just want to kind of have this taken from a higher authority than me on the overblown nature of, of the, da the danger. I figure if Lawton, uh, who has worked all over the world with composting, says something, we can take it to be pretty factual. So here we go. Jeff, uh, tell us the deal about toxins in compost. As long as it's not a very large proportion of toxin that you're trying to compost. So if you've got a very small amount, suppose you're using some um, vegetable waste or fruit waste or, or even, you know, some plant material that's been sprayed with a toxin or has had toxic chemicals applied to it. It's a small proportion. When it goes into the compost and goes through the cycle, right, the humic acids um, involved in the breakdown and all the life, 50 million genus of bacteria potentially and 50 million genus of fungi potentially involved in the process, lock up the toxins to the carbon molecule. So the carbon molecule is a cube. Diamonds are made out of carbon. The hardest substance in the known universe. But it's a cube and, and the toxic elements are locked onto the carbon molecule and become a longer chain molecule which is inert. So it's kind of ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Then it's, and you can test it and you can find lots of research on that. Small amounts, not large amounts, small amounts of toxin into compost materials taken through a compost process. You test it afterwards, you can't find that material in a volatile form anymore. The environment's been doing it forever. 
There's quite a lot of toxic materials out there naturally in the, in the environment. And with environmentally rich processes at the soil surface, they come into balance. We're just, all you're doing with a compost heap is you're designing it and revving it up. That's all. Uh, and, and that's a little video clip that has Paul Wheaton just pulling his hair out, what, he, what hair he has still anyway. Paul, sorry, I have to kick you when I can do it because I like you. Um, because he knows that there's a big problem here. So what's, what's the kind of in between? What's going on? The problem comes with large-scale commercial compost production that's primarily derived from one or two sources that end up with high concentrations of things like atrazine or 2,4-D or some of these other uh, new uh, newer uh, herbicides that are being used uh, to deal with persistency with really long half-lives. Half-lives as long, for, according to Paul, five to seven years, some even longer. And when you get the high concentration into your compost, then this inert behavior with these longer change molecules can only happen so effectively. It, it runs out of its capacity to do its job because it's overwhelmed. So, you know, would you want me to sprinkle diesel fuel on your garden? No. I mean, that's just, you'd kill everything, right? But if you've got an eyedropper and put five or six drops of diesel fuel on a garden that was, let's say, 100 feet by by four feet wide, it's it's not really going to have an effect at all. I still wouldn't do it, but let's be honest. The, the system will, will regulate itself and balance itself out. Probably a couple teaspoons or tablespoons mixed throughout the whole thing would have a very minor effect initially and no effect over time, right? Even though it's definitely something we wouldn't want to dump a gallon right in the middle of your garden and kill everything dead, right? So... That's where we got to find this balance. So here's what we can do. One thing we can do, it depends on how much do you need. If you are building a, you know, a, a few raised beds, uh, four by eights or something like that, you might need, you know, mixed in with your soil, four or five bags per bed of good quality compost. Uh, if you're doing the Mel's mix, you'll, you know, for square foot gardening, you, you just follow his recipe there. But what I'll, what I'll say in combination with him is, If you had to go to the store and buy compost, I would say go buy, if you need 20 bags, buy four bags of five different varieties. And that's going to mitigate things right there. The problem, though, is when you need lots of compost, and you're dealing with a situation like I do. Now, what I use is from a city compost facility, and you just drive up there, big piles of it, shovel all you want, take it all for free, as long as you shovel it yourself. Or pay them $15 a yard and they'll load it for you. Load it for you. And I shovel it because it's good exercise. And I would rather spend 30 minutes shoveling compost talking to other gardeners than, than five minutes while some guy dumps a yard in the back of my truck. I feel it. You know, it's part of homesteading is doing the work. Uh, not that I hold it against anybody that pays the 15 bucks. So um, that compost can end up with significant toxins in it, which also degrade over time and become inert in time. And you'll see it mostly in how it would affect plants in the nightshade family and the legume family. And the legume family is like your canary in the coal mine. You can have compost that your peppers and tomatoes, which are nightshades, do beautiful in, and then you plant legumes in them and the legumes do poorly. If that's the case, you have low-level toxicity, and it will degrade over time. 
And it's probably not much of a health threat either, like people want to blow it out of proportion, because it's a natural process of, of making these things inert over time as biology returns to the soil. So that's a, a, another thing. And it's how much are you using? Are you mixing it in or are you growing in 12 inches of pure compost? And there's places where there's no organic matter available, and we bring the compost, and that's what they do. Uh, Mel Bartholomew from Square Foot Gardening is teaching people in certain parts of the world, just they, they can't get vermiculite in the peat moss, he recommends. So they just grow in compost, and it works. Um, I think adding rock dust and green sand and things, lava sand and stuff like that would actually really improve the mineral content of it. And so there's where you're, you're dealing with. So if you need something like a square yard or several square yards, you're doing major overhaul, large-scale gardening, and you need a massive amount, it's more than you can produce and you want to buy it, buying it in bags at Home Depot or Lowe's is not the way to go. It's not the way to go. You can look for a supplier that can give you a guarantee you're getting organic compost, and you still might end up with residues in it. It's, it's really impossible to be sure um, because organic processing for waste is different than organic processing for food. Um, but it would be one step in the right direction. Another thing would just be to find a local landscape dealer. Open up your yellow pages online. Find landscape dealers that deliver compost or uh, will load your truck for you where you buy it. Go out and say, I'd like a bucket of this and I want to test it. And if they say no, then say I'll find somebody that will let me do that. Or I'll give you a buck for it. I just want a bucket. Take it home and put it into three or four flower pots. Uh, and take a fifth flower pot and just use potting soil, regular potting soil, organic potting soil uh, in, in that one. Plant beans of some sort or peas of some sort in all the buckets. And if the control, which is in the known organic potting soil, grows really good and the other ones grow crappy, that's not a good source. Legumes will tell you that. If they grow pretty decent, You've got a good, safe source. Now you can order from that guy. Or if it's a city source, you can take it from them. I've tested the stuff from our city. It's, it's worked great most of the time. I built a couple hoogle beds uh, this year. And there was a spot about three feet long in the one bed that I know that particular compost that went into that spot was clearly not clean. It had some type of something in there that was a residual herbicide because the whole bed was booming and there was this one empty spot that just wouldn't grow. And my solution was I carpet bombed it with seed. I just took leftover seed packets, whatever, and I just freaking hit it with everything. Whatever grew, grew. And that gets the biology of the system working and gets a natural process of breakdown. If you're going to use something like a city compost facility, it's something you're going to have to accept is probably part of the process. And you have to decide for yourself whether you're willing to allow that on your property or not. Take those risks uh, and deal with the time it takes to heal it. My view, though, is someone that, you know, because I don't walk the party line, the global warming will kill us all and all that, that I'm not an environmentalist. I'm a huge environmentalist. I don't believe that the air you exhale is a toxin, but I believe there's lots of things out there that we need to learn to deal with. And city compost facilities largely use as one of their inputs human waste. That's something that no one likes to talk about, but it's true. So we talk about human manure. When you see city compost facilities, generally speaking, they're using human waste as part of the treatment out of the freshwater treatment plant, and instead of letting that stuff go somewhere else, it's actually being converted to a useful product. So they're solving a problem. So that problem can then become a solution to things like making land that is barren fertile. And it's up to us to do that. And 
the real problem is the inputs of the 2,4-D and the atrazine and the Roundup and everything else, the glyphosate and all that stuff anyway. So the problem is in the compost process. It's the application of this stuff. The less of it's applied, the better off we'll be. Now, with city facilities, you've got that component, uh, and you've got yard trimmings and things like that. So you should end up with a relatively small amount of toxin because when they bring in grass clippings and yard trimmings and stuff like that, you can only put so much toxin on something that you want to keep growing. It's not like corn that's specially bred to be sprayed. Or it's not like soy that's specially bred to be uh, uh, bred to be sprayed. So I actually feel that you're going to get less toxin out of something like that than out of commercially produced agricultural yield compost. To me, that's where all this boog boogaboo scary stuff has come from. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Jen in North Carolina. I have a question about using my attic space as storage. Um, it is definitely not climate controlled. Uh, this is an area of the house where the roof itself is not insulated. Um, so it gets extremely cold in the winter. It's broiling in the summer. And I was trying to think what kind of long-term storables or supplies are stable in, um, in an environment with wild temperature swings. Um, whether, you know, from hardware to plastics. I know food won't store very well in, in a climate like that, but what, in terms of preps, could take the heat and the cold and the wild temperature swings? Thanks, Jack. Well, there's not a lot of stuff, right? Um, one thing we can do is try to improve the environment, radiant barriers, attic fans, things like that. That's good for our energy efficiency, and we're not going to deal with so much heat up there Uh, but it's probably never going to be to the point where it would do what we would ideally want in a storage space for what we normally think of as preps. Basically, you can store in a space like that anything that doesn't have a shelf life anyway. Um, so you're looking, and you don't want food in an attic because you just, it's just a potential for rodent infestation already, and it's just, it's kind of asking for trouble. And you don't want certainly petroleum products or ammo, not just the temperature, but if you get a house fire and you got ammo stored in a roof, it's a, it's a whole thing onto itself for, let's say, petroleum products. So all that's out. So what does it leave us with? Well, one thing it would leave us with is medical supplies. Um, other than the medications themselves, bandages, uh, suture kits, all of the kind of stuff like that that should be part of your long-term prepping uh, could go up there. I mean, a, a gauze bandage doesn't really care if it's stored at 110 degrees or 5 degrees. It doesn't really matter. It just isn't going to really affect anything. Tools, so any of your tools, anything made out of wood and steel, Uh, we can store up there. If we have containers that we're not using, obviously they can be stored up there. Uh, a better way to think about it might be, what do I have occupying space that's good storage for preps that, that doesn't mind if it goes in the attic? So, you know, the traditional thing to store in your attic is Christmas decorations, right? Because you only bring them out once a year, right? So you got your Christmas lights and all that stuff like that. So, That would be an example where most people are probably already doing it. But if you had a closet, inside that closet were Christmas decorations or Halloween decorations, get that crap out of there, put that up in your attic. So a, a better way to approach this instead of what can I store in my attic other than some basic things, tools, medical supplies, I don't know how much else you can really store in your attic. Again, I'm not comfortable storing ammo up there. Maybe some additional firearms, if there's ever a firearm seizure, it might be one place that's not really well checked. 
Um, and as long as your attic is secure, it's no different than any other place in your house. Maybe some type of uh, gold, silver, cash, things like that in a proper storage box. Uh, these are, again, anything that just doesn't require it, right? But a better application might be, let me find all of the stuff that's in the way that's not a prep, not a food, not a, a heat-sensitive item, and let's relocate that and free the space it's occupying for additional storage. That's the best I can do for you there. This is a great one for the audience, though. I know with all the stuff I've already covered today, I'm missing some stuff. So let's hear it in the show notes today for episode... Uh 988, uh, stop by the blog at thesurvivalpodcast.com and tell me what you think about what we can store in areas like an attic or any other place where we don't have climate control. What are the ideal things to be storing there? Uh, a lot of places it would be, I would say, water. Water doesn't really care if it's warm or hot, but uh, an attic, it gets really hot, and unless it's stored in something that's not going to have any reaction, like I wouldn't put plastic uh, bottles with water in your attic. Uh, stainless steel, if you have stainless steel you're storing water in, I wouldn't have a problem putting that up there. Uh, make sure there's enough space so that it doesn't, you know, cause leakage from expansion and contraction. Other than that, I don't know, guys, tell me. All right, next one. Hi, Jack, this is Matt in Idaho. I had a question about fencing. I've got about 60 acres up here and need to start putting a house and stuff on it, but before I even do that, I wanted to get some, uh, some of the long-term Uh, trees and stuff like that in place. My big concern is I've got lots of wildlife, deer, elk especially, and I don't want to perimeter fence the whole thing and keep them out. I love having them there. I want to zone five, leave a lot for them, but I also want to put in these fruit trees and not have them completely debarked and not to death within the first three months. Uh, do you have any ideas besides the an eight-foot-tall perimeter fence? I'd love to do hedges or something like that eventually as a more natural barrier, but that'll take time to grow up, so I'm trying to figure out if I have any options besides just a straight-up fence. Thank you, sir. Bye. Well, first, I, I want to tell you that at some point you probably do want to put up some type of perimeter fence around the house. Uh, for your more intensively managed gardens and stuff like that, if you have that much wildlife, because you're never going to keep the average garden from being destroyed by deer if you don't. You're going to need a fence and probably a dog inside the fence. We don't need an eight-foot fence. We need a fence that doesn't keep deer out, keeps dogs in, and the dogs will keep the deer and the elk away because they won't want anything to do with the dogs. So some space you're going to want to do that with. But I understand, you know, these outer areas, it's expensive to face, you know, fence large areas anyway. You do like the wildlife there. Well, here's the thing. If you want to keep a deer out, of an acre, you need like an eight-foot fence like you're saying. If you want to keep a deer away from a tree, all you need is about a four- or five-foot-high piece of fencing that goes around that tree. They won't, a small confined area with a fence, they won't go in there. And you don't even need to be that big. I'm talking about just if you put some of the green T-posts around your, your trees, and you can even use some pretty large ones and use them as, you know, to cable your trees while they're establishing the root system, Uh, and then wrap just, you know, like horse fencing or, or what have you around that, uh, so that for the, figure out where the, the, the withers of a deer or an elk are, and when they're up against that fence, they can't reach from there to where the tree is. That's all you gotta do. That's all you gotta do. They won't go in there. They won't try to go in there. They won't knock it down. Another great way to deter deer is with fishing string. Uh, and you probably want to hang like, ribbons or something off it just so that you can see it as well so that you don't end up walking into it all the time forget it's there but if you create a perimeter around an area with fence posts 
and you put like 25 pound or heavier so that it won't break the first time something walks into it. Fishing string around it, uh, maybe one about the head height of the deer, one about the withers height, and one about the ankle height, and they walk into it. Some about it freak. I mean, they could easily just push it away and go, right? Unless they're starving or something, it freaks them the hell out. Uh, ben Falk up in, uh, in Vermont, there's deer all over his place. Even with all the people camping there, I found deer sign that wasn't there the day before. So there were deer walking right in between the tents with probably 30 people camping there. Um, he has all his rice fields done that way. Just string, uh, strung up fishing line with little ribbons all the way around the rice paddies. And he doesn't have any real deer damage whatsoever. Uh, just because when they walk into that, they don't understand, you gotta understand the mind of a deer. It doesn't under, there's this resistance, there's this thing touching me, and I, I don't know what, I can't understand it. So I, it, there's danger there. You know, these wild animals, you know, unless they become truly, you know, accepting of human contact and all, and some places they get that, you know, I've seen places where, you know, a guy's out, you know, watering his bushes and a deer's eating the bushes on the other side of the walkway because they become that, tame if they're in anywhere with any kind of hunting pressure and and predator pressure they never get that tame and things like that will deter them so again just a just a small fenced area around the individual tree which is much less expensive than uh fencing the whole property and it's reusable so you know once that tree's you know a two-year-old tree and you get the crown up above their browse level You don't have a problem with them anymore. Now we can remove it and we can use the same material to establish another tree and another tree and another tree. All right, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Jen in North Carolina again. A uh, second question for you this week. I am trying to design a pasture rotation system that will include uh, not only pigs but cows, which I currently have on my place, and uh, laying hens and started pullets, which I will have to overwinter. Um, my con and I'd also like to add pigs sometime in the system. Um, what I'm concerned with is developing a rotation where confinement in a giant, as Joel Salatin would say, carbonaceous diaper environment, um, basically a deep litter system, uh, would be part of that rotation. Um, because the grass is not always metabolizing, you know, here through the winter, we've got very limited regenerative capacity on the land. Um, we have very wet winters, and I want to get them off the ground and allow the uh, re reduced compaction. So um, multi-species-wise, have you ever heard of a deep litter system that incorporates more than one species in the same space? I know that uh, pigs love to eat chickens, um, so I, I don't know about putting the chickens with the pigs and the cows, but we don't have, we only have five acres, so I trying to develop a, a barn that would contain all of these animals efficiently and then, of course, be able to be scooped out with a tractor. So just brainstorming here, I wonder if you or any, uh, you know, permaculture consultant or, you know, anyone who has some perspective on sustainable farming incorporating confinement for the winter or any portion thereof would have to weigh in on my idea. Thanks. Bye. Well, I thought about uh, punting this one over to Darby Simpson from Simpson Family Farm since he's much more uh, in tune with rotational grazing than I am. And I may still do that and ask him to add to what I'm about to tell you, but here's some of my initial thoughts. 
Um, first of all, you're really dealing with two separate issues. One, how do I effectively manage a large number of species with rotational grazing on my limited pasture during the grazing season? That's question one. That we can deal with with numbers, how often we rotate, how we manage our pasture, and what we graze. That I can really help with. The other side of it, though, is I get this wet, cold winter period where all of that manure out there is just going to sit and stink and stagnate and, and be covered with snow and, and nasty. And the animals, if they're walking around, they're just going to be doing nothing but compacting it because it's too wet during that period. I don't want them there. And this is what makes places like Texas great for cattle, uh, grass-fed cattle. We don't have that season. It, there's no time where grass won't grow in, in most of Texas. Uh, as long as you're in the right climate and what have you. I mean, so a southern person has a different way of looking at this than a northern person, uh, not due to cultural things, but due to climatic situations. So me approaching this, what I'm going to say is, first of all, let's be in touch with the fact you have five acres. But let's just start out with that. And that when we look at the third ethic of permaculture, The, the third ethic is return of surplus, and it was originally, you know, initially described as a fair share from a different viewpoint than the hippies have tried to make that mean. And, and the fair share component of that is I can only take so much, right? I can only take so many uh, uh, plants before there's none to replenish. I can only take so much from a land before the land can't handle it anymore. And that includes running an animal yield off of land. I, I can't put, there's like, for, this is to be, you know, completely obvious. If you ask me, how do I raise a uh, hundred cattle a year on five acres? You know what the answer is. You, you either create a CAFO in a disgusting environment or you don't do it. I mean, it's just, you can't do it with pasture. You don't have enough. So we have to, let's limit the, the animals in the first place, and only you know your pasture, your growing season, how long they can be out there, how we can do that. But that's one side of it. And, you know, we're probably looking at, like, maybe a few, you know, Dexter miniature cattle or something like that. We're definitely not looking at a large herd of freaking black Angus or anything like that. Uh, you just don't have the space. Now, I have a guy here locally who does chickens and hogs on his farm. He has quite a bit more than five acres, though. And the way he does the chickens and tractors, and he does the, the hogs and basically hog tractors and follows them, and that's straight out of Joel Salad, and that's where he's got it from. And, and that works, and he's basically rotating annually between, so like he has like half his farm will be used one year, and then it just almost nothing is done to it the second year. And it's, you know, toward the end, he might run the animals on there a little bit. Um, but his methodology leads me to part of your solution, and that is, we really have to think about how much we're going to overwinter. What, what are we overwintering and why? So we look at hogs. Um, we can grow hogs from piglet to slaughter in a single season. Oh, heritage breeds, domestic, you name it, we can do it. So we shouldn't be overwintering very many hogs. Um, you only got a five-acre farm. You're not going to have a herd of, uh, of 50 breeder hogs on a five-acre farm. It's just not going to happen. You know, Maybe it's, it's, a, it's a single sow and a boar that you breed every year. Uh, and that would just reduce the overwintering capacity. The other option, uh, probably a better option, for a, a person with a five-acre homestead is find a good heritage uh, hog breeder locally that breeds the kind of hogs you want to uh, to buy and buy piglets from them every year, pasture those, and kill them before winter sets in. Now they don't have to go in the barn. Um, that That's my instinct on the size property that you're talking about. And hogs, as I talked about earlier, are, you know, you, you never let your guard down when you're working with hogs. 
And anybody who's worked with hogs will tell you that. You just don't do it. Um, uh, you know, there's some, I've seen pigs domesticated like a dog before. I, I really have. But when you're dealing with livestock that's being raised short, you know, term to be slaughtered and it's not being treated like a puppy every day, a hog is a dangerous thing. So that would eliminate them from the equation. Another option might be to look at raising hogs that are easier to deal with smaller animals. In Asia, the little thing we call a pet here, a pot-bellied pig, is a highly prized meat source. And those little guys run around in these mountain farms free range all the time. And when they want one, they just, okay, it's his turn. He's going this time. Uh, so, and, and I know they have a lot of poultry in with them. Now, confined may be a different uh, scenario, but it seems that the way the Asians do things with these smaller hogs and their poultry, they don't have a lot of problems with the hogs killing the chickens in that type of scenario. I don't have direct experience with that, but that might be another way so that we're, we're breeding up several of these smaller hogs every year and we're only keeping a pair for our breeding stock if you wanted to be self-sufficient. But just don't think that because you buy your hogs or buy your pullets every year, you're not self-sufficient because you're dealing within your local community and not, no one can do it. If every, if everybody could do everything, there'd be no economy. Right, so we we got to have some of that exchange. The the pullets you mentioned, I'm I'm thinking there you're talking about chickens that you are specifically breeding for meat, and there's no reason for so the the pullets shouldn't be going in the barn. They should be slaughtered and 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 and, and being used as protein uh, through your winter. So. Uh, and I'm going to tell you that for most people, buying them is better than trying to raise up their own chickens from their own laying flocks. So now we're down to some cattle and chickens in the barn. and and Or we're cattle and chicken in the barn, and we're ending it up with maybe uh, some hogs in a separate confined area, a very small number. And that is kind of the approach that I would take. And then deep litter, yes. Now the thing about your chickens, right, is as long as there's bare ground, you know, as long as there's, there's ground for them to access and it's not really badly damaged, probably when it's still, what I'm saying is when it's still too wet, when you wouldn't let me let your cattle out in the field due to compaction and all, or you wouldn't let hogs out there due to their wallowing nature and what have you, it's still too wet for that, your chickens can go out there. They're not going to hurt nothing. And uh, that might even be a time of year with your with your laying hens that you give them more freedom and let them even free range a bit, and they'll go find the area that they're most needed. Their behavior will just lead them to that. So I am not a rotational grazer yet. I've, I, this is all based on theory and no practice with this level of a question. But that's the best I can do based on everything that I've learned over the years about these types of process. I would just say, again, be very careful at the number of animals you try to put into this size of a piece of land. Because if we're looking at a five-acre property, by the time we have outbuildings and barns and houses and infrastructure, we've probably got four acres to play with. And maybe it's even, you know, if you're married to the idea of having cattle, that's fine. But, man, I think that's a goat property more than a cattle property. And they're going to be much easier on the land, much easier to pasture, much easier to move around, uh, much less space in the barn. Uh, great, if you're wanting this mainly from the from the, the cow thing, is milk. Goat milk is just awesome. So that's another consideration. But you have to make your own decisions. I'll punt this one to Darby and see what he says about my thoughts and what his thoughts are, and maybe we can get him on next week with a follow-up to this one. I think it's a great question. Uh, if I can ever get Saladin back on the show, boy, I'd love to ask that one of him. 
Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Redfoot calling out in North Carolina. I have a question for you about buying my first pistol. So, yes, I'm in the market buying my first pistol, and I want to get a 22 because, honestly, I know I need to practice. I think getting a 22 would be the cheapest way to practice as much as possible. And I'm wondering which one I should go for. Um, you mentioned once on the show the GFG 1911. You said you really liked it. Is that the one you think I should get, or is it better to go with the P22? I think that's what it's called. Um, I'm pretty new to guns. I own a Ruger 1022 and a Marlin Papoose uh, breakdown rifle. But I would love your advice on a pistol. All right. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Well, I do like the GSG 1911, and let's talk about a mistake I made, because you learn from other people's mistakes versus your own, uh, and then we'll talk about why I like it and what I bought it for. I like, or I made the mistake of when I bought it, the guy had two different models. One had the little Pictimi rail on the bottom for like a tactical light or whatever, and uh, he said, which one do you want? They cost the same price, and I thought, well, well hell, why not get the uh, one with the little uh, frame? Well, that means I have to get a separate holster to train with it, because my main carry gun doesn't have it, and why the hell that I do that. I, 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 and to this day, I, I, every time I look at it, I go, you're such an idiot, Jack. You really are. I, I think back to that split second, and like I hadn't even, I hadn't even left the gun show that I bought it at. And I went, you're a dumbass. And I thought about going, and I'm just like, you know, exchanging a gun and just keep it. And, you know, maybe you could throw uh, 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 something on there, uh, uh, a tr Crimson Chase laser or something like that, and uh, use it to help Dorothy learn to shoot. But why did I buy the GSG 1911? Because I'm a 1911 shooter. I have a 1911 uh, 22 conversion kit, but it's nice to have uh, a 1911 frame gun that I can just pick up and le and leave my 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 you know main uh, gun alone and shoot and train with all of the ergonomics of a 1911. So if you're Plans are one day that you'll probably be a 1911 shooter. Like down the road, you're looking at stepping into a 45 with a 1911 frame. Uh, to me, it's 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 the perfection of design for a shooter. Uh, I don't think it's the most reliable handgun ever made, but it's damn reliable when properly used and taken care of, and from a good quality manufacturer. And from a fit, the way the the weapon fits the hand, the way it points naturally. And coupled with the 45 ACP and the two were made for each other, it is just, there's a reason it's been around for over 100 years, and it'll probably be around for 100 more if the gun grabbers never get their way. So that's why. So if I was not a 1911 shooter, I wouldn't have really been attracted to that other than it's a great gun. It, it really is a great gun. It'd be a great gun to learn to shoot with. And even if you're not going to be a 1911 shooter, if you're going to eventually own a tactical-style handgun, They pretty much function very similarly. The, 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 the magazine release is generally something you're going to actuate with a thumb. Uh, there's a slide release. You know, they pretty much function very similarly, double action versus single action, things like that. But when it comes to just getting the basics of mechanics down, it would do that for you, and it's probably a pretty good gun. Another gun to con consider, except it's not going to be a good gun, for uh, developing the tactical aspects of things, but a very uh, very reliable, affordable, and just excellent weapon that's also been around dang near you know, forever. Or we, remember, I used to have an army uh, sergeant. He used to say uh, that, that he was so old, he, he remembers when Jesus was a private. Uh, so maybe, you know, <laughs> I'll leave that one go. But you get my point. It's been around a while. It's a Ruger Mark II. Um, he, uh, the, the, the Mark II 
is uh, one of the most accurate .22 handguns uh, that I have any experience with. I remember one day being out at a, a gun range and was shooting at like a 25 meter berm with a 10-22 or not a 10 a Ruger Mark II at uh, some clay skeet, and the guy was going, "That's pretty accurate." And we had some set out on a hundred yard berm that the guys were shooting with rifles, and I said, "I bet you I can hit some of those skeet. I can barely see that far. I can bet you I can hit some of those skeet off that bank with this." And he thought I was crazy, and I had to fire uh, a couple shots to kind of bring the range in, but I got to after a few times where I was able to hit skeet on a bank with a 10-22 handgun from a rest. Uh, I would say about one out of every three shots, I was dropping it in and hitting one of the, the skeet that were laying there. Uh, I don't know a lot of 22 handguns that are that accurate, so it's very accurate. The problem is the magazine release is at the bottom of the pistol grip. So it's kind of a two-handed release, pull out. There's no quick drop reload, which is fine, but you're not going to get that component of tactical training out of it. So if it's just a reliable, inexpensive, durable, last forever, always work gun to learn the fundamentals of muscle control and shooting and something you can probably own so long that it'll belong to a great-grandchild someday, again, if the gun grabbers don't get their way, um, it's a great gun. And, and it is, and there's a billion holsters and accessories and what have you for it because it's been around forever. Um, a gun that would make a good uh, training tool as well, if one day you're going to step up into a tactical uh, handgun and you're going to be more of like the polymer, Glock, Sig, whatever shooters, the Sig Mosquito. Uh, the Sig Mosquito is about 90% the size of the 226, and it's ergonomically exactly the same. The release, uh, the safety, uh, the, 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 uh, the magazine release, all of it is the same. And if you had that, it's a great, reliable, affordable, good quality uh, handgun. And uh, for a lot of people that would say that a 22 is not a good defensive tool, a Sig Mosquito would actually be a pretty damn good defensive tool. Um, I would prefer to carry something other than a 22 for self-defense, but when we look at ballistics, records and reports and lethality of shot and stopping people, uh, the 22 does damn better than anybody would expect. And actually on paper anyway, from action, there's a, 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 a lethality study that was done where the 22 performed better than the 38 Special, the 357 Magnum, the 9mm, and the 40 Smith and Wesson when actually somebody was shot with it, right? And, and so... Uh, that would probably be like if you don't have the money or the, the inclination right now to own something more proper for a self-defense gun, one that I would feel would probably be the, one of the better ones to carry uh, or to even have as a self-defense tool until you can maybe get something a little more appropriate, uh, just from reliability, functionality, capacity, all of that stuff. Another option, if you um, are going to be a Glock guy eventually, Maybe it's a good time to go ahead and be a Glock guy now. Go ahead and get your Glock in 9mm or 40 Smith or what have you and get a conversion kit uh, that allows you to shoot 22s on your Glock frame. It takes about 20 seconds to these conversion kits to take the top slide off of your Glock and throw the 22 on there. Um, while I'm a 1911 guy, because I've been shooting one since I was 7 years old, I will acknowledge that probably the most reliable sidearm you could own, and one day I'm probably going to break down and go over to the dark side and start carrying a Glock versus a 1911, is the Glock. It, it, there's, there's a reason so many people are a fan. And a, a new shooter that's going to eventually carry a weapon could not do better than a Glock. I'll admit it. 
It's hard to do, but I'll admit it. With the 22, if you have the budget, you could basically have your 22 and be training with the same frame. And that has a lot of utility as well. I'll put a link to one of these, uh, these 22 conversion kits in the show notes today for you guys with a little video of a guy um, at GlockStore.com showing how they work, how they switch over, and that would also be a good option. The problem is you're looking at five, six hundred bucks for the Glock. Maybe you can find one at a gun show uh, for... 400. I've seen the like the service duty reconditioned ones, uh, you know, for 400 uh, with extra mags and all. Those are good deals when you can find them. Whenever you go to a gun show, look around and see if any if you're looking to market for a Glock, look for the service issued reconditioned stuff. It's a great deal. It comes with the same warranty as buying a new one and what have you, um, and they're just so reliable anyway. And cops don't shoot their guns that much. But you're out four to six hundred bucks on on the sidearm, and then you're out another three hundred on the conversion kit. So it's an expensive way to go. But if you're going to go there anyway, it would be a great way to have a tool you can train with low cost, and the ammo savings. Uh, we'll pay for it. That's, again, if you're going to be buying a Glock and actually shooting it and training with it regularly. All right, with that, uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. I went to a pumpkin patch yesterday, and this particular pumpkin patch grows over 100 different varieties of squash. And I was wondering if you could tell me, um, one, how to save seeds from squash, and then, two, if there are any varieties that are especially good for eating any varieties that store well, um, things like that. So if, if you could talk about squash a little bit, I would appreciate it. Keep it up, man. Thanks. Well, I probably wouldn't save any of the seeds from whatever you bought there. Um, squash are notorious for cross-pollinization, and then when you plant a cross-pollinated seed, you don't know where you're going to get. A lot of people call them Franken-squash, because some things come out really cool and some things come out not so much. Um, so... Let's start out with the part of the question about what stores really well and, and tastes really well. Most squash, especially when you're talking about winter squash, pumpkin-style squash, the taste is not that much different from one to the other. The more immune to vine borers, the better off you are, in my opinion. And two that spring to mind are the, uh, the, the long neck pumpkin, Pennsylvania Dutch-style stuff, right, uh, which are very large. And they have this huge long neck, and that's all pumpkin flesh, right? And it's like a squash pumpkin. It's, it's the same daggone thing, and a little bulb at the bottom. Or the good old-fashioned Waltham butternut. Those are probably your two most resistant to vine borers. Vine borers don't even mess with Waltham butternut at all. And, and it, when you grow it and you look at the vine, you go, well, of course they don't. The squash bugs will get to it, but it's, it's so quick-growing and so vigorous and so productive, even if they, and I had a couple plants this year dang out killed, but I still got a whole bunch of squash before they managed to kill it, and I've got new plants growing and putting more squash on right now. So Waltham butternut in the south is my big pick, and in the northeast, uh, I would be more inclined to do more with long neck pumpkin, which I'm going to eventually try down here as well. Old-time cornfield pumpkins, another great one. I'm growing some of that uh this year that some people uh sent me some seeds of and uh, it's done pretty well but it gets hit by borers and it gets hit by um uh squash bugs as well but uh what you'll find is that things in the C moschata family and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong cuz I don't speak latin but m o s c h a t a like butternut uh and 
things in the Kershaw family like C. Mixta, M-I-X-T-A. Those squashes are going to have fairly decent insect resistant, not fully resistant to squash bugs, but heavily, heavily resistant to squash borers. Um, so those are like kind of the area if you want good quality eating squash that you can make. Pumpkin beer out of pumpkin pie out of pumpkin cookies out of do canned pumpkin uh, do you know uh, squash casserole squash soup all that stuff those are kind of my my places I would look around the butternut long neck and Kershaw's uh, as far as saving seeds from squash because they cross pollinate so heavily and so readily. It's one of the places where if you want to grow a lot of different varieties, you may just be better off buying most of your seed. If you want to save it, it's actually really easy to do, though. What you got to do is pay attention. Just pay attention to your squash plants. And when you look, you'll see two types of blossoms on your squash plants, and you'll see far more males than females. Males are just a big, long stem with a flower on it. And then you'll see like look like a little bitty squash with a blossom on the end of it. Pay attention squash that you want to, to propagate seed for. And watch those little female blossoms. Wait till a day when they look like they're just about to open. And understand, if they look like they're going to open today, tomorrow morning when the sun comes up, they're going to open. If you walk your squash plants in the morning, you'll always see all these new blossoms open every morning. So you want to watch it. And when it looks like it's about ready to open, open it manually, gently. Get a male flower, break it off, pull the blossom all off around the stamen, and use it to pollinate your female blossom. Maybe even get two of them. So two different male uh, blossoms and pollinate. If you can get them from another plant of the same species, so much the better. But you can use the same plant if you want to. Take some plain old paper masking tape. Tape the blossom shut so it won't open. You've just manually pollinated it before ever an insect could get to it. The blossom will never open. Within a day or two, it'll fall off. And then take a little zip tie, like a, like a like a like a, a zip tie thing, or a twisty tie, or a hemp string, or something like that. Tie it on the vine, not so it constricts the vine, but behind your your squash uh, fruit, so that it won't fall off. When you harvest the squash, any of them that have whatever little indicator you've decided to use, and I use little vinyl zip because they last a season without rotting off, right? Little vinyl zip tie. You can get a whole bag of them for a couple dollars. I put those in front of any squash I've manually pollinated. And then whenever I harvest that squash, right, I'm going to let it sit out. I'm going to let the skin toughen up so that it'll store well. And if I, if I'm, you know, if I think I'm, I might want to let it store for a while before I finally use it and I'm going to want the seeds out of it, I just write S on the skin of the squash with a Sharpie. I'm not going to eat the skin anyway. And any squash that's got an S on it, Whenever I go to use it, I know that that's a squash I can save seeds from. And I, I you know, take them out, let them dry, put them in a labeled bag. This is butternut. This is, you know, this is uh, white Kershaw, what have you. That's it. That's, that's how I do it. And that's how I make sure that I've got pure seed for my propagation of plants next year. But a lot of times I just buy some seed because it's cheap. But like the butternuts, I grow a lot of butternut. I like them. Storability, butternut, butternut, butternut. Telling you, um, one summer we and we get really early production with them down here. I had a big old butternut squash, and I think this was like July, 
And I took it off the vine. I brought it in the house. We had a window seat in the kitchen. I set it there. And it looked kind of cool, but it, it didn't look like something that should be there for good. And the wife said, well, how long are you going to leave that there? I said, I'm going to leave it there until it goes bad to see how long they'll store with just out in the open. And she laughed. He goes, oh, okay, because she figures like a week or two. So it was June of the next year before it started to get black spots on it and feel soft, and I threw it away. It almost stored a year sitting in a window seat in a kitchen. So I'm telling you, if you had that in a, a, a root cellar, a cool uh, environment without a lot of light, I think it would last even longer. The big thing to get in your squash to really store well, though, is to let the skin kind of tough enough after you harvest them. Leave them, leave them outside. Fall's a great time to do it with a little bit of sun hitting them. Uh, and you'll also find some of your, your pumpkins and things like that, that if the, if the, uh, if the insects get to the plant and pretty much kill the plant, Uh, if you just leave them on the vine anyway, there's still some nutrient throw, flow through the vine. If they're not fully ripened up, they'll ripen up and toughen up anyway. Or if the, the plant's shot, like the vine, I had a few pumpkins this year that uh, vine borers got to, and I just uh, I went ahead and took them, and I set them outside for a couple days, and I set them on the cool floor in the kitchen near the window where they're going to get some light and be cool and, and have the, the, the floor taking, you know, the hard floor taking away the heat on them. And they've ripened up to a beautiful uh, kind of orange and green. These are the seedless ones, or the uh, holeless seed ones uh, that have oranged up really nice, even though they were pretty green when I took them. So there's things you can do to deal with that. But storage, long-term butternut, uh, seed saving, hand pollinate. If you bought from a place with a hundred different varieties, they're probably hand pollinating what they're saving for themselves. And if you want to talk to them, they could probably provide you with seed that they know uh, has been pollinated true. Let's take another call. Jack, Brent and PEI. When saving pepper seeds, particularly hot peppers, is it better to extract the seeds when the pepper is fresh or wait until it's completely dried? I've always extracted the seeds usually when the peppers are fresh, but then I'm stuck with a mutilated pepper that I have to use right away. I would prefer to let it dry completely, crush, get the seeds, and use the dry skins for, you know, cooking and elsewhere. I have a plant that I have overwintered, so I don't want to take the chance on uh, losing seed from a pod I've decided to uh, dry. So what would Jack do? Thanks. Bye. Easy one, another seed one. Uh, Brent, with your peppers, if you want to string them up and dry them out and use them as a dried pepper, Uh, the seed will be just fine in there when you're, when you're, when you're ready to use them. If you want to save seeds from a pepper you've just picked today and you've gone ahead and, and cut it, cut it open to use it, because that's how it worked out for you, uh, throw the seeds on a paper plate or something, set them aside, let them dry, stick them in a bag. Either way, they'll do fine. They're one of the easiest seeds in the world to save. There's no big process like you do with a tomato or whatever. But if anything, letting them dry out will probably get you higher germination rates than using them wet because it's a natural process that most peppers will go through. Whenever you think about saving seed in the optimum way for a plant, try to recreate what happens in nature. Tomatoes rot, uh, hit the ground. They're a running plant. They're a vining plant. They don't generally climb much, so they spread out on the ground if we don't stake them up. Uh, tomatoes are wet. They, when the winter comes, they get wet and they ferment and all. That's why we do a tomato the way we do in a jar and let the stuff ferment. A pepper is a bush. And if it goes into a period of time, and a pepper's a perennial where it grows natively, uh, the peppers sit on the plant, 
they dry out in the winter, and eventually something either eats them or busts them open, or they break and they shatter, and the seeds fall in the spring and repropagate. So drying a pepper would probably be a more optimum, based on native reproductivity of a pepper, uh, way to save the seeds anyway. So go nuts with it. And uh, enjoy those peppers. You sent me some pictures of some of the different types of peppers you're growing the other day, man. Uh, that starfish thing looked really cool. I don't remember what that was called, uh, but that looked like an atomic starfish. Is one of the peppers Brent's growing. It's just awesome looking. And Brent, even up in Prince, Prince Edward Island, Canada, has been overwintering peppers. You can prune them in the in the in the fall and take them into indoors or into a heated greenhouse and get them through winter, and they'll start producing much earlier next year. So I'll throw that in there as a little bonus on pepper propagation. And let's take one more call, and we'll wrap up for this Friday. Hey, Jack. It's John from Wisconsin. Love the show. I've got a question for you. Um, with the drought we had this last year across most of the country, how would you recommend we best um, prep our gardens for next year, considering this is probably going to be a dry winter, and they're talking about more drought next year? Thanks. Talk to you later. Okay, um, I'm going to revert to something Jeff Lawton said on the air here. And if we look at a lack of water as a desert-like condition, and we look at the designs that work in desert, then if we live in a climate where we have something we call a drought, but it's not a desert, then we should do fairly well getting through it. And what Lawton said is if you want to design a desert to be productive, then as crazy as it sounds, a desert is a flood waiting to happen doesn't get a lot of rain, but it gets a lot of rain in a short period of time. So the annual rainfall, while low, uh, is made up for in a large volume at any one time. When we deal with drought or drought-like conditions that we've dealt with in the Midwest and what have you this year, it, we're dealing with the exact same thing, but it's weighted more in our favor than it would be in a desert. We have plenty more rain than we do in a desert. Even in these drought conditions that we talk about, um, going 60 days without a lot of rain is not really a drought if you're comparing it to something like Southern California's typical climate. All right, so I think we're spoiled with rainfall. And another thing I'm going to say, and I've said this before, I think the drought this year is overblown by the media as it would pertain to a homesteader. Now, large-scale agricultural crops in certain areas, yeah, they've taken it hard. But for us, well, I don't think anybody that listens to this show is the person that farms 10,000 acres of corn and soy. And if they are, they probably get angry when they hear one of my shows about GMOs and they don't listen anymore. But the biggest thing we can do as a homesteader is design our, our, our gardens and our, our broadacre crops even, when we're talking about a few acres, for a flood. And how do we design for a flood? We use contour landscape development. That's, what we, that's the biggest thing that we do. We can do swales to grow trees. I've had a lot of questions about swales. I've, I've gone on and on and on about them. But we can also use swale-like structures. Uh, in other words, a garden doesn't just have to be a square If we are smart, we build our garden beds on contour as well. We build contour paths between them, and we, we tailor the bed to the landscape instead of trying to make the landscape square and flat. And people say all the time, but Jack, my land's perfectly flat. No, it's not. Unless you have a house in the middle of the bottom of a dry salt lake bed, you do not have a flat yard. And you don't have a flat farm. It is not flat. I know you think it is. Build an A-frame level and start looking for contour lines, and you'll find them. And what's interesting is the flatter it is, the greater effect you can have with contour design, as crazy as it sounds. 
because when you do something there, you really see the impact. You really know something's been done. So that's the first thing we can do. The next thing we can do is we make sure we're using large amounts of organic matter for mulch, large amounts of organic matter in our soil, develop our irrigation systems to be highly efficient. These are the things that we can do because let's look at it this way. And this is part of why I tell people a lot of times, when it comes to a homestead, an acre is more than enough for most people. And the reason I say that is because we can pretty much irrigate an acre everywhere we've tried to make it productive if we really want to. Trying to irrigate, you know, a 40-acre homestead is difficult and if you don't have like, you know, government subsidies for the water and stuff like that. Um so if we look at really effective drip irrigation and things like that, we can do a lot even in a very dry climate. The next thing we can do is we look at our selection of what we're going to grow. If we plant drought tolerant plants as our more broad acre plantings will do much better and if we time them right okay and what i mean by timing them right is it's one thing to say something's drought tolerant but that doesn't mean you can plant it during the drought you got to plant it before the droughty conditions arrive so we look at a lot of plants like uh, especially certain heirloom species of sorghum uh if we're going to want to grow some grain maybe a better choice than corn Now corn is corn and it is what it is. So there's certain things that corn does that it provides for us that sorghum does not. But if it's being grown for animal fodder or something like that, sorghum does a good job. But that doesn't mean I can go out and plant sorghum seed when the ground's completely dry. I've got to get it in at the right time. So I've got to time it, select the right species of plant to deal with the droughty condition, especially as I move into more of broad acre situation. The next thing we could do is something we've talked about extensively with hugel culture. And what I've learned with and again I think we should call this wood beds. I think of all the, like I said what should we call hugel culture in the United States because we don't build them a meter and a half high and hugel bed basically means high bed. Uh we do them in the ground, we do low ones, we do mounds, we do all kinds of stuff with this woody core. And I think woody bed or wood bed is it people came up with some really fascinating Latinaic words and all but it missed the point. I'm trying to simplify it so that when somebody says to me, "Well, what is that?" I say it's and if I say it's a woody bed, they 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 kind of understand what it is uh instead of going huh because that was my problem with hugel but not only is it inaccurate the way we've kind of changed it and adapted it to our own situations here in the states but most people go hugel well, how, what they don't know what that means right so and it's not that there's no hugel true hugel culture in the US it's just not what most homesteaders are doing we're building little 1 meter high raised you know mound beds or we're doing them in the ground and it does work really really well and what i've learned this year is that yeah there's places and seasonal things and plants that can be grown in a hugel culture bed probably anywhere in the world if you do it right with no irrigation at all but it doesn't mean it has to be what we're trying to accomplish it doesn't always have to be about no irrigation at all uh, a garden i have to water once a week or twice a week is a hell of a lot less work to maintain than a garden i have to water every day and that's the big thing hugelkultur brought me in the very droughty harsh summer that we just had it wasn't that i didn't water at all it's that i could go out and water on monday and friday you know or monday and thursday whenever the plants looked like they needed a little bit whenever the cucumbers got a little bit too bitter you know and 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 i didn't have to do it every single day where in texas even like these great deep beautifully prepared beds in the in the heat of the summer sometimes i had to water twice a day just to keep everything alive i go water in the morning before i go to work and as soon as i get home you know the plants were like a life support 
where with a hoo culture bed, even when you're having to do some irrigation, what you don't see is that plant in the middle of the day going, oh my God, help me. And all the leaves are wilted over. And, you know, you see squash in the middle of the day and the leaves just are to the ground. It never looked like that. It always looked healthy and robust. And therefore, it's not just about the irrigation. One of the big problems with droughty conditions is even if the plant survives, it's weakened, now it's more susceptible to disease and pests. So these are the ways we can combine this thing. Good choices of when we plant and what we plant. Good quality irrigation. Lots of organic matter. Very deep mulch. Wood-based culture. Hoogle beds, for lack of a better word, or woodsy beds. And doing our design of our beds on contour so they harvest every... When it does rain, there's no runoff. It's all weeped in or, you know, it's completely saturated before anything runs off. That is, if we do that, so design for a flood, choose the right plantings, plant at the right time, don't be afraid to irrigate, design efficient irrigation. And when you're managing, let's say, a half of an acre of, of plantings, which is a lot for a typical homesteader for personal use, um, that is a, is a recipe for success right there. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Shut it.